Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Conversation in Veterinary Pathology, the ACVP podcast, brought to you by the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. The purpose of this podcast is to bring the veterinary pathology community together to bolster our connections and spread knowledge. This segment aims to highlight those in our field at all stages of their careers, from all backgrounds and subspecialties. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Hannah Atkins, and this is Dr. Carolyn Labriola. Welcome. Before we get started, I wanted to highlight a new initiative by the ACVP Advocacy and Policy Committee. Have you seen a pathology error published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal? I have. Maybe the authors interpret values below the detection limit of an assay, or maybe there are no image examples of key microscopic or gross findings. These types of errors or omissions are unfortunately becoming more common in scientific publications, especially if a pathologist is not included as an author or in the review process. Well, if you find something like this while perusing the scientific literature, you can submit it to the ACVP Errors and Publication web portal, a resource produced by the ACVP Advocacy and Policy Committee. Your submission is used to create a database for determining the extent of pathology errors and eventually developing standards and procedures that will help improve the accuracy of published pathology data. All submissions are anonymous and greatly appreciated as they are critical for moving the initiative forward. There's a link to the Errors and Publication web portal on the ACVP website at www.acvp.org. A link is included in the show notes as well. Let's move on to our conversation. Today's guest is Dr. Jay Kohler, president of the Davis-Thompson Foundation and an anatomic veterinary pathologist at Auburn University. Through her work with both of these entities, Dr. Kohler has likely positively impacted the education of thousands of pathology trainees in veterinary pathology. Today, we'll learn about her mentors, research, and her favorite lesion, plus the one pathology-related gift that she would love to receive. So come along for our conversation with Dr. Jay Kohler. I am incredibly grateful that you are here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. I am really trying hard not to fangirl over here. (laughs) I see you as a huge name in veterinary pathology, but I want to know how you got started. Could you tell us about a mentor that had significant positive influence on you and your career? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, I I had a sort of an interesting, um, unconventional path. Uh, I was in private practice for 11 years uh, before I went back to do a residency and a PhD. So I, I this is almost a second career for me. Um, so I have a lot of clinical background. And I think there's part of me that's just sort of a clinician at heart. But that aside, you know, in terms of mentoring, um, you know, I think that my answer to that is going to be the answer that a lot of us would come up with. And, and that's Bruce Williams. You know, he's, uh, we've been friends for almost 20 years now. And uh, he's just, you know, fantastic. I hope he's not listening to this. He's going to get a big head. I'm going to have to take him down a couple of notches uh, at our next meeting. But, you know, he's the heart and soul of the Davis Thompson Foundation, um, you know, and all of the work that he does with the JPC. Uh, he's just, he is, he is veterinary pathology 
24-7-365. And, you know, can can any of us really imagine what our, anybody who's trained in the last, you know, 25 years, can we imagine what our training would have looked like without, you know, the Davis Thompson Foundation, without JPC, without VSPO, you know, it's just, it's just unbelievable. You know, he he wakes up and he eats, sleeps, breathes, you know. (laughs) No, I'm I'm not encouraging a poor work-life balance, but uh, uh, you know he he is. Um, we have a lot of personality traits in common, uh, I think, which is why we're friends. <laughs> but we, you know we have this sort of irreverence and um, a low a low a very low tolerance, maybe even pathologically low tolerance for bureaucratic uh, BS. <laughs> and uh, you know very filterless uh, speaking style, and we're both very much in love with language and words and uh, descriptions and, and all of that kind of stuff. I think that we both have really high expectations of, of residents and the people that we train, but also this very fierce mama bear protectiveness of them as well. <laughs> you know, like, uh, so yeah, you know, I, I don't know many people who can, anybody maybe who can match his level of dedication um, in terms of the stuff that he's done and the way that he has shaped how we learn and how we teach people and how we train. Um, yeah, I, I I think maybe Paco, you know, is also another one that I just think, man, that guy is amazing. You know, the energy. Um, he has airplane-related superpowers. Uh <laughs> He can be on a flight, you know, like from Macedonia, and then like the next day he's like doing necropsies all day on the floor. Uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, I, I I go on a transoceanic trip and I gotta take to the bed for a week, you know, like with my smelling salts. He's <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, Bruce is. Um, I just I just cannot really tell you how much he's shaped my career and my. Uh, my work ethic, you know, in, in some ways, just, you know, to be fortunate enough to work with somebody who has got that degree of dedication, I think, you know, it makes you want to work harder, it makes you want to, um, it inspires you, you know, and I'm I'm always inspired by his amount of dedication. Uh, you know, he was kind enough, he trusted me enough to pass off the descriptive course uh, to me, which was his, his baby. Um, and that really meant a lot. And I hope I've, I hope I've done him proud by it. You know, I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of him. He's, he's, uh, he, he works too hard, but I've, I'm seeing him being able to back off just a little bit, you know, as he's able to let things go and, and trust some folks to do that. But yeah, Bruce is a, and, and don't let his self-effacing, uh, oh, I just surround myself with smart people. I'm not that smart thing. Fool you. He is one of the crazy smartest people I know, uh, on top of being, you know, dedicated for sure. There definitely was a point in my life where I was listening to Bruce's voice, walking the dog, going to, you know, driving anywhere in the shower, <laughs> just when you're studying. Well, hello. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I have never met Bruce in person, maybe, maybe, but I think that everyone who has ever listened to a video from the Davis Thompson Foundation, which he's done, oh my gosh, hours and hours that I would call him a mentor, even without ever having met him. Absolutely. When was it that you met him? 
I actually met him at uh, the descriptive course uh, when I took the descriptive course. Um, and, uh, you know, I just was at the time, just background, you know, again, I was I was older. Uh, I had already been a clinician for a long time and, you know, had kind of decided to go back to do a residency and a PhD. My kids were older, they were in school. And, um, you know, I felt like I could really you know, knuckle down and, and spend the time and concentrate. Um, and so I, I went to this course. And at the time, Auburn's residency was very, very small. I was with one other resident, and uh, they hadn't hired any new residents. We were the first new residents that they'd hired in like five years. Uh, so it was a very, very small program. And we were very much uh, sort of latchkey kids, you know. Uh, <laughs> no offense to anybody at the time, but we were we were given – a lot of free reign, you know, to kind of train ourselves and, and do what we could with what was available and, um, you know, outside of cases, basically. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and I was just completely blown away by the course and, you know, Paul Stromberg and uh, the, the rest of the folks, Dana Scott and Joe Lynn and the folks who were teaching that course, I just thought this is incredible that somebody has dedicated this much time and effort and talent you know, to do this thing, to train us in a systematic way. It was just fantastic. I was blown away. And, and I actually, the next year, I actually went and paid for the whole entire thing myself because I, it was so valuable to me. The experience was just so fantastic. You know, I thought, man, I want to do this. I want to help with this. I want to help contribute to this mission because, because it just does so much good in the world, you know, and I, and I, even at the time, I don't think I, I didn't realize, you know, I was very, resident centric, you know, and I didn't realize all of the stuff at the time that the Davis Thompson Foundation, which was CL Davis at the time, was doing all over the world. You know, I didn't really even I don't think I was really even tapped into that part of the mission. Uh, you know, because obviously, when you're in your own head, and you're in your own training, you know, you're like, I just got to survive this, you know, you're not really thinking about the world at large. But, um, but yeah, and then, you know, sort of once I sort of found out, all the stuff that 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 the foundation does, you know, I was absolutely hooked. Um, yeah. When was it that you made the transition from a student learning about the Davis Thompson Foundation and the wealth of knowledge that they spread to volunteering and being a part of the Davis Thompson Foundation? Well, um, I was invited, uh, Bruce actually invited me to be part of the gross course to, to give some lectures in the gross course. You know, I had expressed an interest in like, hey, how can I help? I really want to be involved. I I think this organization is great, you know. Uh, and so he uh, he let me lecture in one of the at the one of the gross courses um, back bit when we used to do it, you know, when it was just this absolutely like batan death march of, you know, eight solid hours of just image after image after image after image. And, you know, just lecturing with all of these amazing people, you know, and I'm like a little bitty, itty bitty baby pathology, you know person with with giants like Paul Stromberg and you know just feeling like whoo all right imposter syndrome you know but uh, but you know there the, the way the foundation works is very very generous we we share you know if we invite somebody and they've never lectured before you know we all share images we share lectures we share ideas we share you know so it's not like a it's some sort of test or it's not like you're completely on your own you know it's a very um 
protective, nurturing kind of environment. And so uh, Bruce gave me a lot of his pictures, uh, you know, to, to sort of use in the lectures and, um, and, and really helped, helped guide a lot of that. So, you know, that was my first, I think, intro into lecturing for these courses and seeing it from the other side and seeing, um, yeah, how, how, what an impact it made, you know, on people and how much it helped them. Were you already in academia teaching at that point? Yeah, I was. Um, I was at Auburn. Uh, I've I've had a sort of a fairly boring and uneventful career in the sense that I uh, I did my residency at Auburn. Hard disagree. I'm sorry. I don't yeah. need to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, just in terms of I haven't done a lot of exotic bouncing around, you know, from place to place. Uh, I I I did my residency. I did my undergraduate actually at Auburn, and uh, then I went to LSU from for vet school. I'm from New Orleans. Um, which probably explains a lot. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so when I finished at Auburn, I did not want to go to Auburn for vet school. At the time, it was uh, had the reputation for being a cow college. And I was interested in exotic animal medicine and zoo medicine and things like that. So and I was homesick and I wanted to get back to some good food. So uh, I went to LSU for vet school. But anyway, when I when I knew it was time to come back, you know, I thought, okay, I've really got to do this thing or 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 it's going to be too late, you know. So I looked around at, at several programs, and I got accepted to a bunch of programs. But you know, I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I give Auburn a try. You know, uh, uh, it it was a nice little town. We had little kids, you know, and it was very sort of that medium sized college town, safe, you know. And I thought, oh, I'm going to give this a go, and and it turned out to be sort of a, a dream match because you know, as I said, we were a bit of a latchkey kids, and I like it when people just stay the heck out of my way, you know. Like I got a plan. <laughs> I got, I got this. I got this. Uh, so, so it was great, you know, and they have really been so incredibly supportive of growing the program. You know, now we have six anatomic residents and four ClinPath residents. It's a great big program. Uh, the new, I just handed off being the residency director this year to uh, Dr. Rachel Netto, who is amazing. She's fantastic. And, you know, I think a lot like like Bruce, you know, these things that you care so deeply about that you've nurtured, it's really, it has been really hard for me to like, let go of that. And I, I hope I've been <laughs> graceful about stepping to the side, helping as much as I'm needed, but also kind of getting the heck out of out of her way so she can do things with her own style, you know. When I took the descriptive course, it was with you up there behind the podium. When did that happen? And how did you marry or have different strategies in your teaching between Auburn and doing something like the foundation? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, in 2013, uh, we hosted um, a descriptive course here. And uh, Bruce, you know, kind of let me participate in that. Uh, and then after that, I I started doing descriptive courses and participating, helping to grade tests and and doing some lecturing. And then in 2016, I, I took over as the director of the course. Um, and, and for a couple of years, I, you know, Bruce sort of stepped aside um, and I took over the lecturing portion of that that he did, which was the microscopic portion. That's the, the stuff that we both have a lot of passion about. Uh, and I continued with um, Dr. Stromberg, Paul Stromberg, and, and Dana Scott, who did a lot of our EM, and uh, both just absolutely fantastic. And then, you know, we could sense that the, the format of the exam 
was changing and and there were some things that I wanted to kind of pretty radically reimagine. Um, and so we did a little shift and I invited Lyndon Craig and Patty Pesavento um, on board in 2019. Uh, and you know, they are both just super fantastic. They're very open-minded to sort of doing things a different way and reimagining things. Um, not just uh, when it comes to, you know, test format questions, because, you know, we like to try to include that stuff because I think people expect it. But, you know, honestly, the course is really more about pathology than about, you know, boot camp for the test, you know, so, um, but Lyndon, who has been such a mentor in terms of how she teaches and her, her polling questions, she keeps an audience fully engaged for an, like eight hours. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And, and she's been really a great mentor for me to sort of making sure I'm keeping them really engaged, you know, with those, with those polling questions and, and quizzing and all that kind of stuff. So, and then Patty Pesavento, I mean, I, I, these ladies, I, I, I mean, I'm just so lucky. I, I get to work with these incredible people that I learned so much from. Patty is just fantastic. She's this ball of energy. And, you know, it's funny because I think people forget that we have real jobs, like, <laughs> You know, Patty's doing all this and she's the freaking department head at Davis, you know, like she's a little busy. Oh, and also like discovering new viruses and, you know, like it's just, uh, yeah, it's amazing. You know, they're writing textbooks They're So, yeah. And, and so we, uh, we kind of really, really reimagined a lot of it. Um, and we changed the format of how we do things, uh, in some ways. And, and we did try to pivot a little bit and incorporate some of those image-based assessment, multiple choice type questions, you know, but I always keep slides in there. I want slides. We've gone digital on the slides, uh, which is great. Um, cause it means everybody's looking at exactly the same thing and it really helps facilitate when we go over those slides. Uh, I think, you know, I have a little bit of a different approach when I talk about grading rubrics, um, um, for those slides, uh, you know, we, we have this great peer exercise where people actually, maybe for the first time ever, some of them ha have to grade their partner's test, their write-up. And it's a very humbling, you know, it's, 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 I always say it's just a, it's like 10 million times easier to tear things down than it is to build things up. And it's very easy for us to criticize, you know, things, but man, once you have to walk in someone's shoes, you know, you realize what a challenge things are. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think it, it makes you think in a different way. And, and I really am into active learning. Um, I'm, I try to, you know, sometimes you have to lecture and that's, that's okay. Uh, we have to get through Bloom's taxonomy, right? You know, till we get to a point where we're using new knowledge. But, uh, but I really, I am a very sort of, uh, you know, jumpy person, and I, I can't sit still for eight hours of somebody going, wah, 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 wah. You know, I can't, I can't do it. So I try not to ask it of my, of my people who come to my courses, yeah, for sure. So yeah, so and then we set off on uh, a wonderful whirlwind. Um, you know, we, we did Tufts and we, uh, and then we did Australia and then we did Budapest and then COVID came. <laughs> and then the next year we were the first course to pivot to virtual. And I was really, really worried. Um, you know, cause one of the things that makes this course so fantastic, honestly, is the in-person experience where you're with other people 
you're you're able to t- detach from your workday, uh, detach from your other obligations. You don't have people coming in your office, and you know multitasking is a lie, and science absolutely backs me up on that. It is a lie that we tell ourselves to cope and and we're really all actually quite poor at it. Um, so anyway, so we just did what we needed to do and, and we pivoted and I think we delivered as good a course as we absolutely could deliver um, and, and reached a wider audience, you know, than people. So there are these pros and cons, right? Um, and that's a philosophical struggle for sure. Along that line, both with what you've already discussed and how you started doing scanned slides with with the Davis Thompson Foundation and then having COVID hit and needing to go virtual, how do you see advances in digital pathology affecting the current and future teaching atmosphere in residencies? Well, I think that's really exciting. Um, I mean, you know, first off, I just do want to say, I feel like I'm I'm talking about Bruce a lot, but, you know, Bruce has had was responsible with the JPC and which was the AFIP, you know, before that, he's had whole slide imaging digital pathology, quote unquote, available for 20 years. Uh, You know, he was an absolute pioneer in this. Nobody else was doing this. And, you know, we have had VSPO for, you know, 20 years. Uh, And so like this whole, I kind of, honestly, the term digital pathology is just a little bit of a pet peeve for me because it's such a weirdly vague term. What is digital pathology? You know, is digital pathology just scanning slides and looking at scan slides instead of glass? Is digital pathology image analysis, you know, where we use deep learning, convolutional neural networks, and, you know, other sort of AI-based algorithms or just pathologist taught algorithm, you know, like, I just feel like it's this weird, vague uh, term. So, you know, we're already, we already are and have been using digital pathology quite a bit if we include whole slide imaging in that, um, for sure. And, and I think that, you know, as we had to pivot in COVID, we all got really great at video conferencing, we all got really great, you know, we've got uh, we've all got cameras on our scopes now. And so, you know, um, we we do virtual rounds. We have students, you know, we have residents come in and we encourage them to come in if they're feeling good and they're on campus and they're, you know, but it's great that, hey, if I'm not feeling good and I don't, I don't want to come into the office, you know, we can invite people. We can also invite people at other institutions to participate and we do that as well. So yeah, I think that that is great. I don't think it's ever going to take the place of getting together in a physical place, but this is me. I'm, I have my extrovert bias. <laughs> COVID was horrible for me. <laughs> uh, I love people and I love being with people and I get a lot of energy from that. And so, um, you know, for me, doing things virtually sometimes feels like trying to lick an ice cream cone through glass. Um, <laughs> it's like, I want it, you know, but 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 it is great. So it's got these pros and cons, right? And I, I think sometimes... Um, people look a little bit past the cons, you know, and then you get together in these rooms with all of these people. And it's just these spontaneous interactions happen. You know, it's almost like brownie in motion for humans, you know, and these things, you they sort of we bump into each other and in these unexpected ways that have a lot to do with physical proximity and body language and facial expression and the serendipity of the moment. And that it just does not happen on video conferencing, um, I be at all as far as I can tell, but maybe just I'll just be generous and say to the same extent, you know. Uh, so um, yeah, so I I think that we are 
I think that digital pathology in the sense of, you know, all of those things is going to become increasingly become a bigger part of our lives. And I do think that things like, for instance, ChatGBT and other these large language models, which are really great at some things and hilariously stupid at other things. I think we've all experienced that, the hilarity of, you know, like robots are just so stupid. I was doing a, during COVID, I actually took a sabbatical. Um, That was when my sabbatical that I had waited for six years was scheduled. And my choices were either give up and don't take your sabbatical or take your sabbatical right in the middle of COVID isolation. So I chose the latter and I wanted to do a bunch of image analysis based stuff. And and, uh, Regan Baird from Visiofarm was just, I just cannot tell you how generous he was. It was amazing. We did this we worked on this project virtually, um, and he he helped me and let me gave me access to, you know, a lot of the stuff that they had that was really cutting edge, uh, you know, the deep learning, you know, technology and stuff, you know, for training machines on sample sets and then applying it to future sets and, um, yeah, it was it was amazing. But I I sent him I made a meme for him, you know, <laughs> it's the meme of the woman, the screaming woman and the cat, you know, and and it's like. You know, I could show a toddler, a two-year-old child, a banana one time, and for the rest of that person's life, they're going to know what a banana is, even if it's brown, even if it's green, even if it's squished under a car tire, even if it's just the peel, even if it's, it's incredible. The human brain is incredible. But I could show a robot 10,000 different varieties of banana in every shape and form. And then the next time I show it a banana, it's like, surfboard? I mean, you know, so like we think robots are like, so these brilliant things that are going to take over the world, but you know, garbage in, garbage out. And, and, and they're not, they're not thinking the same way that we do. And, you know, so don't, don't discount the humans just yet. Uh, I, my experience with robots is that <laughs> it's variably disappointing. <laughs> well, and it's synergistic, right? The yeah. digital pathology in whatever manifestation we are talking about does have an increasing role in veterinary pathology. But we still need that human with that training on the other side of that keyboard. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, these um, these biotech companies that come up with some, you know, immunohistochemistry and they're like, oh, it's brown. So I'm just going to teach it to recognize brown, right? Like, brown, what? You know, you know, we are going to be incredibly important. And, you know, I think it's important to remember, just like in clinical medicine, you know, where we we cannot get to where standard of care is a $2,000 dental, you know, like that is not accessible for the majority of the population. And, and we can't get to where we consider that the only acceptable form of care. And I'm, I'm super into, you know, molecular profiling of tumors. And I'm really into, you know, pushing things to the next level. You know, if you look at the, the glioma landscape, you know, and, and where we're going with that, and I hope, you know, and where human medicine is with that, you know, with just developing grading schemes and classification schemes that are almost I won't say completely, but very heavily biased towards molecular data that's, you know, tied to outcome data, you know, that we, we, 
that is not going to be something that is accessible for your average general practitioner, you know. And so, and likewise, we have diagnostic labs that are just doing, you know, routine stuff, and they are not going to have access to unlimited, you know, IHC and in situ hybridization and you know molecular profiling. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't push the envelope for sure. But I think we have to have these sort of all of these multiple levels and figure out how to take what we're learning at the top and sort of convert it into something that can be used by folks who don't have all those tools. Was it that sort of thinking that, you know, the the average clinician won't have access to some of these higher techniques? Did that come into play in your decisions to work with AAV vectors against working to help get rid of brain tumors in dogs and cats and goats and humans? (laughs) Yeah, well, gosh, you know, the so it's interesting. I'm part of a group... um, that started, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think about how long that ago that was, maybe 2016 or so. Amy LeBlanc, uh, who is uh, at the NIH in the Comparative Oncology Program, she's a veterinary oncologist, absolutely brilliant, um, and and such a powerhouse. And and I coincidentally happened to be her husband was a classmate of mine uh, at vet school and and is a clinical pathologist. Casey LeBlanc again, also super smart, super nice. They're just great people. But uh, anyway, you know, she invited me to be part of this group that was the Comparative Brain Tumor Consortium um, that that was under the umbrella, being funded sort of internally uh, through the through NCI, National Cancer Institute Comparative Oncology Program, and and the purpose was really to get some traction for the dog as a valid model to understand uh, comparative biology of brain tumors and and how we can have a more useful model in some ways uh, than mice. Mice are great for a lot of things. You know, we all know we love to just buy mice from Jack's and <laughs> do our thing and then, then they're gone and <laughs> it's all very predictable. We do it on a Tuesday, you know, everything's... Uh, you know, obeys the rules for the most part, uh, you know, and so trying to go from that to human clinical trials has been fairly disappointing. Um, and we we have not made a humongous, any really humongous strides, I think, in um, glioma treatment, you know, in 40 years, despite pouring massive amounts of human energy and, and money. And, you know, I think the discovery of, you know, temozolomide and, um MGMT promoter methylation and understanding that landscape and IDH mutations and things like that has been helpful, but we haven't really made a whole lot of progress in terms of survival of patients, which is really disappointing. Yet. Uh, yeah. Yet. Yes. So far. So, you know, so part of that making some better headway on that, I think, is having better models. And it's something that can really benefit both you know, frankly, I love people and I'm glad that if I'm doing something that's going to help people, but I love dogs. I'm a veterinarian and I I want to help animals. And, and so, you know, I try to be engaged in things that are simultaneously beneficial to uh, my patients uh, and also to humans. That's great. I, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in things that I don't think are also going to benefit my patients as well, you know, just for the heck of it. So, um, yeah, so the, so through that, uh, met uh, Renee Chambers, who's a actually a really interesting person. She's a, a neurosurgeon at UAB, a human neurosurgeon. But before that, she was a veterinarian and a veterinary neurologist. Oh, my gosh. So she, yeah, she's like, a, <laughs> wow, how many degrees? Yeah, it's like, wow, she's got a lot of letters after her name. But uh, yeah, so she, you know, she kind of got involved in this project. And, and there's a guy there who's been working on this modified human herpes simplex virus. Uh, 
as a as a sort of a, a vector for for things. And so it's it's an interesting it's an interesting virus. Uh, and I and I have also been involved with AAV vectored gene therapy uh, through there's a group here, uh, Doug Martin and um, Heather Gray Edwards, who's now at University of Massachusetts, actually, uh, who they developed a AAV vectored gene therapy to treat neuronal storage diseases, uh, a variety, you know, they they have colonies here of cats that have, you know, GM1, GM2, um, and the, the sheep with Tay-Sachs. And uh, so, yeah, and it, it's been really amazing working with that group. They're so focused, you know, they're just incredibly productive and focused. And it's been a real joy and a privilege to be able to sort of offer them some pathology support and, and, and ideas. And they've gotten through that work they got sort of the inhuman use um for several kids now and you know these are this is a devastating i mean disease where you basically know it's there and then you just sort of watch your child die slowly it's it's just heartbreaking and there's no there's nothing and and some of these kids that they've treated are like it's a it's just it's phenomenal it's very impactful yeah so it, you're right. It is a mm. devastating disease, and and anything that the scientific community can do to forward treating it is incredible. Yeah, this is this group is just super duper A plus. I'm like I say, I'm I feel very fortunate, and you know, and Heather and I have really become good friends, uh, and we continue to. We actually just are just just putting in a <laughs> a last minute R01 uh, this week, I think. But yeah, to for some interesting, very interesting new sheep models of, of neuronal storage diseases. So I can't wait to read the papers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you've talked about how amazing the human brain is, you know, recognizing bananas. <laughs> you've talked about tumors and models. Was there a point in your career that you went, I really love brains? Ah, oh yeah. Well, you know, I actually, when I started, this is so funny. Uh, this is for all you residents out there who feel bad because you don't know what you want to do. <laughs> I started out, so when I was in vet school, uh, I did a uh, one of those ACVP externships uh, at University of Tennessee with Dr. Linda Munson, who was a incredible zoo and wildlife pathologist, uh, an absolute pillar of the pathology community and, um, yeah, and a hard ass. <laughs> she brooked no fools, I can tell you that for sure. But I, I worked with her on a black rhino dermatopathy paper. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, uh, this is cool. I really, you know, I did exotic animal medicine when I was a clinician a little bit. And, you know, I thought I want to do wildlife and zoo and wildlife pathology, and I want to focus my PhD on environmental toxicology. You know, uh, I want to, you know, arsenicals and mercury and things like that. And then I quickly, I think, became <laughs> sort of discouraged because the funding environment for uh, work like that is pretty bleak, and there are actually sort of crazy, powerful entities actively. <laughs> trying to make sure it doesn't happen, you know? So um, anyway, I, I had, there was a, a, a pathologist here, um, uh, Nancy Cox, 
who uh, was a neuropathologist who worked at the Scott Ritchie Research Center, which is where Doug Martin and the uh, the storage disease cats and all those all that animal model work happens. It's really an interesting, unique place. It it is formed by a very big donation from a private person, and the the mission of it is to uh, investigate diseases that affect both animals and people and sort of do things for the benefit of, of both. Um, and so there's some muscular dystrophy work that's being done there and some, uh, cancer work, uh, osteosarcoma and, uh, you know, things like that. Uh, so, so it's a really interesting and kind of a unique place, uh, in that it's not just focused on human medicine and it's not just focused on veterinary medicine. It's very much a comparative, this needs to benefit both species. Uh, so she was doing all the neuropathology there and, uh, I, she taught a neuropathology class and I, and I took that and I just felt completely in love with it. And she, I was very fortunate. She allowed me to look at all of the neuro cases with her and some of the experimental work and agreed to be my major professor and was an, and was incredibly supportive despite the fact that right after I started my PhD, she developed breast cancer. And throughout my entire PhD, she was going through chemo and radiation, and it was a very aggressive form. And she ended up um, passing away just a few months after she hooded me at my PhD ceremony. So, but she was fantastic, very uh, smart, sassy Texas woman. <laughs> she was, again, a no-nonsense, uh, very high standards. And um, yeah, I fell in love with that. And, and there was another researcher there at the Scott Ritchie Research Center, uh, Tatiana Samoylova, who was working on phage library display, where using these large libraries of phages that express peptides on their outer coat, using those to sort of stick to cells and see who sticks and then sequence that short peptide sequence and use it for targeting of therapeutics. Uh, so I didn't end up staying in her lab, but uh, she taught me a lot about discipline and she was working on glioma. And at the time, I, I was also very interested in uh, glioma. And then I became, as I got more and more into glioma, and as a pathologist, as I was looking at these tumors that had tremendous amounts of necrosis on the inside, there's a lot of work at the time going on about cancer stem cells and you know the thought that not all cancer cells are created equally and that there's this very small subpopulation of stem-like cells that repopulates the entire tumor and they're much more resistant to radiotherapy. They're much more resistant to chemotherapy, et cetera. They're in this sort of like weird, stemmy, quiescent state, you know, and uh, then they can, uh, when necessary, we kill off all the weak ones and then they, you know, come back. And, and that one of the things that, that sort of drives this phenotype is is hypoxia. Uh, and so I, I pioneered this crazy cobbled together experiment where I was making my own hypoxic chambers. We had no money. And so, you know, I started really started getting into this and sort of creating my own weird home homemade hypoxic chambers and, uh, you know, just interested in how that really important part of the microenvironment of a tumor influences the, you know, the phenotype and the behavioral and even the epigenetics, you know, sort of, uh, landscape of, of these tumors. And, and I think that, you know, what's been interesting is that I would not have been involved in that or, or known about it or been interested in it the same way had I not looked at those tumors through the microscope. You know, it's that understanding of three-dimensionality and the fact that tumors are neighborhoods. They're, it's not like a ball pit, you know, full of <laughs> cancer cells. It's this whole neighborhood with streets and 
houses and parks and, you know, uh, I know I'm getting, I'm, I'm really taking liberties with this metaphor, but, you know, there are all of these components. The microenvironment of the tumor is everything. And there is so much that's happening. It's not a passive place that's just holding tumor cells, right? So I think that that architecture and my falling in love with histology and histopathology and architecture, it's interesting because I think it informs a lot of my um, research curiosity for sure. During your education and your residency and your PhD, you said that you were inspired by the pathology, by the histology and the science. What inspires you most about your students? Oh, that is super easy to answer for sure. It's curiosity. Always, you know, I feel like this is the this is the quality that I can tell from day one, honestly, you know, we, we've, we've had all good residents. I mean, they're, you know, they're great in terms of the, the people who've been in our program. But there are these folks who just are so relentlessly curious. Uh, and I, I always find that I think those folks are going to be the most successful. And not only that, but I think they're going to be the happiest. Uh, because when you're curious, Every day is a new opportunity, uh, you know, to see something you've never seen before, to dig in, to learn, um, you know, and there are people who just sort of get cases off their desk and, hey, look, I've been there. We've all been there. We've all had those days where we're like, I got to, I just got to get to the bottom of this flat. <laughs> but, you know, the people who really dig in and ask why just one more time and ask why, and why that, but then, and also then why that, you know, I feel like that's the thing that is so invigorating to be around all the time. And, you know, I, I know that that exists in other places besides academia, but for me, I really, I'm a lifer for sure. I know that this is the right place for me and I know this is where I want to be. And I get, I, you know, I feel like I, I, I try to give a lot, but I also get a lot from them. Um, it's kind of selfish actually, you know, their energy and their curiosity, it's just so invigorating and, um, and I love it. Uh, so yeah, you know, I mean, there was this great quote, Thomas McRae, uh, who uh, I'll try not to go all Stromberg here and give you the history of medicine, but but Thomas McRae, who was a protege of William Osler, uh, uh, Osler who discovered Oslerus osleri, and who also basically created uh, Johns Hopkins and created the modern medical residency. Uh, but anyway, Thomas McRae said, you know, more is missed by not looking than not knowing. And I do think that that is very, very true. You know, when we maintain our curiosity and our persistence, you know, there's always going to be that case that we don't get the answer on and it keeps us up at night for sure. But, um, you know, but it's that digging, it's that digging, you don't have to be the most, you know, Einstein brilliant person in the world, if you're just curious, uh, and you keep asking questions, and you keep looking carefully, you know, you'll get there. So yes, curiosity uh, is a, something that I love. And I, and I feel like it makes people more interesting, you know, too. They always have something to talk about, curious people, because they're always into something. It sounds like you really care about your residents and that you're able to build this rapport through mutual curiosity. And you've mentioned being, you know, a bit of a mama bear to them. <laughs> what do you see as the biggest challenges to your residents? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think that that right now, it's an interesting time. It's like the ancient, it's like the Chinese proverb, right? May you live in interesting times. We're, we're going through some interesting times right now. And, you know, this last batch of folks who started residencies during the weirdness of COVID, uh, 
you know, that is obviously a huge, weird thing to have to do. You know, it changed the way that we do everything. You know, so there's that sort of short-term thing of doing a residency and and being in a world that's been really weirdly reshaped and economically reshaped and socially reshaped. We've got some weird social stuff going on right now um, that we don't have to get into that political stuff. But uh, but it's weird out there all over the world, and um, and it feels a little precarious to me. And I I know that it's got to feel like that to them as well. We we have. I definitely try not to be one of these, when I was in well, back in the old days, we had to walk up and sit two miles in shoes, and, you know, whatever. But, you know, I try not to do that. But but really, I will say that the amount of resources that people have, that residents have to study with now was something that, you know, even really 10 or 15 years ago was just not there. Um, you know, I have to, a huge shout out to the foundation again for just Noah's archive and Noah's slide box, which uh, this is another sort of love project of Bruce and Mike Dark, who is from at Florida. God, I mean, Mike is talk about somebody who just gives and gives and gives of themselves so selflessly to the foundation. Um, he is an amazing person and and very quiet and would not be somebody who would ever sort of, you know, be out in front of anything. But he does all of our IT stuff and he has been kind of really, he and Bruce have worked together to mastermind this Noah's slide box, which we're now over a thousand scan slides. Um, so archived meetings and uh, it's just this amazing resource. The YouTube channel has got years of, of stuff. You'll just never run out of stuff to look at, you know, there. And, and even actually, you know, we try to flag things that are older, you know, but man, some of those masters of pathology, listening to them lecture, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. Some stuff has changed, some names have changed, some information's changed. But man, it's just like what a what an a resource that is available. But the sort of dark side of that, I think, you know, I am a very, you know, I graduated from vet school in 1996. You know, I'm a very pen and paper uh kind of a kind of a gal, you know, and and actually, I will say that I think that the science is bearing me out that writing things with your hands does something magic with your brain. And the connection that it makes is very different than what happens when you type. Uh, so look it up. But, uh, you know, making those charts and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, the explosion of knowledge that we have had in the last 20 years, thanks to, you know, a bunch of stuff that has become a whole lot easier to do, like deep sequencing and, you know, just just a whole, it's that's made a whole lot of other experimental stuff very uh, much easier to do. And so like the knowledge that we have about things like immunology, uh, it's just staggering, you know, the number of interleukins and cytokines and receptors on cells and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And so, you know, there, there's a lot out there to know. There are a lot of resources. I think that it's hard sometimes to, you can have a computer full of stuff that you've downloaded and you can think you have knowledge, but really what you have is a lot of information. A lot of surfboards. You have <laughs> surfboard. Uh, but, you know, it, so there is a big difference between having a lot of information and having knowledge that has really been synthesized and is embedded in your brain in a permanent way that can be retrieved uh, at a later date. And, you know, so I think that that is actually a struggle. The other thing that is a struggle is that we are in this absolutely un 
unprecedented time of interruption. You know, there's a really, there's a guy, Cal Newport, and he has a book called Deep Work. Um, and so he talks a lot about, you know, we, you need a certain amount of time to think about things and you can't just, you know, pencil in deep thought in 15 minute intervals between other stuff. You need sort of these uninterrupted bits of time. And, and we are in a world right now between email, which I think is a cancer, uh, email, you know, Slack, Teams, you know, we're just constantly getting notifications, social media, boom, 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 boom. You know, we're just constantly getting like woodpeckered to death with like interruptions. And it all gets put back on us to sort of set our own boundaries about that stuff, which is really, really easier said than done. And and I struggle with it too. So I'm I'm not judging anybody or thinking that or I wish I could tell you that I had some great system that was perfect, but I absolutely do not. You know, it is, I just think that it is a, a challenging thing that we're all dealing with, but especially when you're in the middle of a residency and you're really trying to filter and prioritize and you've got, you know, too much stuff to do and too little time. Uh, it's, it's hard. And, and I, I don't envy them that the, the, the self-discipline that they really are going to have to sort of scrape up to make sure that they just block some of that stuff out, you know, uh, and don't, and don't do it. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard. How do you encourage your students to unplug and maybe have that work-life balance away from emails? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I actually do not check my work email at all on nights and weekends. I just don't. I go home at the end of the day. Now, (laughs) that being said, pretty much most of the people that I work with collaboratively have got my phone number. So it's not like they're not texting me, you know, but like, I just feel like that's different, right? That actually could be, uh, and, and, Paco and Bruce like to call me at like seven o'clock in the morning because they know that I'm a horrible, not morning person. But anyway, well, hello, you know, so, so, you know, but, but the only thing that's a real emergency are for people who have my phone number. (laughs) That's the attitude I've taken, you know, and so, hey, text me if it's really, if you really, if it's really important, please do. But I don't just go looking for stuff that I need to take care of. I don't go looking for fires to put out at nights and weekends, you know. And even when I was going through my residency, I had school-age kids and, you know, I made sure I was home for dinner every night and I might go back to work, you know, after they go to sleep. But, uh, you know, trying to have those boundaries. And I'm a big believer in physical activity that isn't out in nature, whatever that happens to be. I think nature is incredibly restorative and healing and gets us out of our goofy little heads and reminds us of our tiny little insignificant place in the universe. (laughs) And so I'm a big hiker and a big, you know, kayaker and um, things like that. So plus vitamin D plus physical activity. Yeah, get outside. That's, that's for sure a recommendation of mine. So, you know, there's some rare exceptions when maybe, you know, we have some weird case that we're working on. But here's the thing, you know, clinicians are going home at five, six o'clock. You know, I don't honestly want my residents, and they'll, they're going to laugh because some of them do, but, you know, I don't want them staying up at work until 11 o'clock trying to get me a report for somebody that's not even there. And I'm definitely not going to look at it until... 8.30, you know, 9, let's be honest. I mean, you know, so I, I want them to have reasonable, you know, residency's hard, right? It's not a 
nine to five job. You're going to work really hard and it's, but it's not going to be forever. It's a temporary situation, but you do still need to take care of your mental and physical health. And, you know, I would rather them maybe get a good night's sleep and finish that up and let's get it out at nine or 10 the next morning, you know, and, and that, that's not a, that's not a, a measurable difference in patient outcome. I don't think, you know, it's different if it's like, oh, something's crashing. We've got to get this, but histopath is not a stat test, you guys, right? <laughs> <laughs> you want clean path. I'm sorry. Hello. You want clean path. Yeah. yeah. Knock on the other door. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Thank you very much for advocating for them and really being there and, you know, mama bearing it and paying attention to their needs <laughs> and, and trying to make it so that they have a good life so they can get through and be that pathologist that they've always wanted to be. Totally. This is a, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon and you have to pace yourself appropriately so that you don't, because like if you burn out, that doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do us any good. You know, it's, it's a terrible way to be. So yeah, slow burn. I would like to take a little pivot and ask you some fun questions. How does that sound? (laughs) Super. (laughs) Do you have a dream lesion that you would be exceptionally excited to encounter? Oh my God. I absolutely 100% have an answer for this every time. So I've read these wonderful human reports of teratomas that have a lot of brain component in them. And they found oligodendrogliomas in the brain component of a teratoma. And I just feel like if I ever get one of those, I'm going to just explode into like a thousand blackbirds of joy and and then I'm done. (laughs) That's incredible. <laughs> but, you know, I and also uh, just, you know, separately, I am still waiting for someone to send me a cyclopic lamb skull, you know, so if you're listening and you have one of these, a spare one, you know, just be my best friend. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. But, you know, every lesion that I haven't seen before is my favorite lesion. You know, what, what an amazing job that we have that you can be doing this for 20 years and you know, then you just see something you've never seen before. We all get so excited about that. It's just so cool. And we get this incredible variety of species. And I was just reading the vet path uh, issue about invertebrate pathology. And I was like, what the heck? One of our residents brought in an oyster that was, I mean, it's just like, what in the Sam Hills this even, but it's so exciting. It's so cool. And and fun. Yeah. Stuff I've never seen. That's always my favorite lesion. Stuff I've never seen. I think most veterinary pathologists would agree with you on that. <laughs> it's Totally. Well, okay. Aside from when you get the cyclopic lamb, because obviously that will trump this. <laughs> As of yet, what is the best pathology related present that you've ever received? Oh gosh. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty, I don't know, man. I've gotten a lot of really good stuff. That's, you know, one of the things that's cool about being in a sort of a, a a visible place is that, you know, people kind of think about you when they come across something cool. And, you know, so I I do get a lot of really cool, you know, my, my price for a consult is that you got to give me slides, but, uh, you know, like I was just at the descriptive course in, in Minnesota, uh, you know, and Arno Wunschmann just gave me like an octopus brain. I mean, it was just super cool. But but the best present, I think, really has to be when the when the late great uh, John King passed away a few years ago, his his widow, Marie, uh, Bruce Williams went up to help them, you know, sort of 
get everything straight and and you know get everything dispersed to the people that he would have wanted to have it and one of the things that went to me was a an original drawing from the original necropsy book um, John King's necropsy book so it's this beautiful like line drawing of the um, removal of the eye from from a horse you know and you got to think back when they did that original book there was no photoshop there was no computer anything it was like you did a drawing and then they printed some text with a press and then you put that layered it on top and took a photograph of it i mean you know it was just so it's this very very and i'm now i'm kicking myself because i can't remember the name of the artist um it was a woman and i should know her name but anyways these beautiful drawing and i really really treasure it you know it's this like wonderful piece of of history, our collective sort of history as a profession. And John was such an amazing person, you know, again, and super dedicated to to teaching and just excited about everything, you know, like watching him with his little black box, you know, that he'd done hundreds of times probably. And he's absolutely as excited as the first time he did it, you know, it's so infectious and, and wonderful, such a, an icon. Well, we started off by asking about a mentor that had a positive influence on you. And you've mentioned Bruce and Nancy Cox and Tatiana Samilova, and the list goes on and now John King. But I'd like to take a second and really thank you for being a mentor for not only your residents and your vet students, but the veterinary pathology community as a whole. Taking on that role as the president of Davis Thompson Foundation is huge. And the content that you put out that's really furthering our profession is just breathtaking. Well, that's really nice. Thank you. That's, that's really nice. It's a, it's such a wonderful organization and I would encourage anybody, you know, who's interested to please contact one of us. If you're interested in volunteering, you know, we always need help. There's so much work that goes on, you know, behind the scenes and we always need people kind of to help with that stuff. And, you know, we need the next generation of, of, of us to, to come on through, you know, and we're, we're always looking for people. And I, I hope everybody, you know, support the foundation, support it with volunteers, support financially, support, you know, our mission. And, and when you're training your own residents, you know, encourage them to, to come to the courses and uh, all of that stuff. So yeah, we all stand on, the shoulders of the people who came before us, you know, so yeah, always happy to have someone climb on up. <laughs> Dr. J. Kohler, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It is going to be so exciting for everyone to hear all of your stories and all of your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. It's been wonderful, fun. All right. And with that, this has been a conversation in veterinary pathology, the ACVP podcast. A huge thank you to Dr. Kohler for having a conversation with us. If you have any feedback about this podcast or have someone you'd like to nominate for us to interview, you can reach us at info at acvp.org. That's I-N-F-O at acvp.org. As a reminder, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts. We look forward to meeting you at the 2023 ACVP ASVCP annual meeting in Chicago, Illinois, October 28th through 31st, 2023. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to our conversation.